Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to tonight's uh, public lecture organized by the New York University Abu Dhabi Institute. Um, it will be given by Janos Pach. Uh, before we start, uh, I would like to remind you all to turn off your cell phones. Um, so let me say a few things about Janos. Since 1977, Janos has been affiliated with the Alfred Renyi Institute of Mathematics at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. And in 2008, he became a research professor at the Ecole Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland, where he is now. Um, he's also a distinguished, was a distinguished professor of computer science at City College uh, in New York from 1992 to 2011. But uh, he's actually uh, not a stranger to NYU. He's part of our family. Uh, in fact, he has been a research professor at the Courant Institute of Mathematical Sciences at NYU since uh, 1986. Uh, I first met Janos Pach uh, at McGill University, where I spent many years. That was back in the 1980s. Uh, we were very lucky that he would come and visit us often in spite of the long, cold winters. Janos is one of the foremost brilliant and prolific researchers in the area known as discrete and computational geometry, a topic that actually dear to my heart since my high school days. And in addition to solving difficult geometry problems, uh, he has the knack of making the difficult seem easy, which I look forward to many times and again this evening. Uh, he has authored several books and uh, more than 200 research papers, and he was one of the most frequent collaborators of the legendary Hungarian mathematician Paul Erdős. Uh, among his awards, I can mention the Grunman Medal from the Janos Bolya Mathematical Society, the Ford Award from the Mathematical Association of America, the Alfred Renyi Prize from the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. In 2011, he was listed as a fellow of the Association for Computing Machinery for his research in computational geometry. And in 2015, he was elected as a fellow of the American Mathematical Society for his contributions to discrete and computational geometry, as well as convexity and combinatorics. I could go on uh, listing uh, many of his accolades, but I prefer to have more time for what he has to say about whether our existence is due to chance or, as Einstein famously said, God does not play dice with the universe. So please welcome Janos Pach. So thanks, Gottfried, for the introduction. I wish half of it were true. Uh, I am really happy to, uh, to be here. For the second time, I was very much impressed uh, when I visited uh, NYU Abu Dhabi about three years ago. And it is great to see this university succeed and grow. And uh, I'm happy to be back. I hope this is not the last time. Now, this picture here, order and disorder, actually I found uh, uh, on the internet uh, I knew this picture, kind of. Uh, these athletes you can see here, uh, they are on the top of 
the Empire State Building when it was built, uh, built in, uh, right after it was built in 1934. And um, this is indeed a precarious uh, balancing act. Uh, one can watch this picture for a long time, at least I was mesmerized by that. Now, <clears throat> so when I was preparing for this talk, then uh, I was thinking about it, that what can a mathematician say uh, about order and disorder? So what do you do in such a case? Of course, uh, you Google it, order, disorder, mathematics. Uh, and to my greatest surprise, this is what I found. Uh, I don't know if you can see it, but on the very top place you see mathematics disorder. Characteristics, treatment of mathematics disorder. So it turns out that there is such a disease or disorder uh, that people, especially, you know, elementary school and high school students, um, just cannot understand mathematics. It is like dyslexia, or maybe they just hate mathematics, I don't know. Uh, but this won't be the main subject of my talk. Uh, it's interesting because on the, yeah. But anyway, you, you, you find all kinds of medical uh, things right below that. But I mean, uh, I sort of understand that uh, uh, most people in the audience, although they don't have this calculia, but they um, don't uh, particularly love mathematics and they are afraid of uh, strange mathematical uh, things like numbers, uh, and I try to avoid those. Uh, so whenever I will state anything which, uh, which is like a mathematical statement, I will do my best uh, to uh, state it in plain English and, uh, and um, uh, sort of explain it, because everything will have some kind of a philosophical, uh, more general meaning. Now, so disorder. So if you look at the dictionary, that under disorder, you see all these negative things. Anarchy, chaos, disarray, turmoil. This is today's news. You know, definitely travel ban, chaos. All of these chaotic things, this, it looks like it is something that we have to avoid, something really bad. And in most cases, this is true. However, it was, I guess, realized a long time ago that you can't even talk about disorder and chaos without uh, uh, talking about order. So this goes back to, at least to Zhuangzi, Chinese, uh, uh, very influential Chinese philosopher, uh, who very explicitly said that uh, it is impossible to separate uh, order and disorder. So those who, uh, who want to have right without wrong, order without disorder, they have no idea uh, how things hang together. And uh, uh, these two things kind of uh, are correlated and uh, to refuse one of them 
means uh, to refuse both of them. Now, this idea is present, actually, in, in most philosophies. And uh, uh, so just uh, making a big jump to the 18th, 19th century German philosopher, philosopher uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Uh, so, so he was perhaps uh, the one uh, who sort of formulated this most explicitly so he, he had this whole theory of dialectics. And uh, so there is, uh, so essentially uh, what he postulated was that, that uh, uh, this thesis, anti-thesis, synthesis, that, that every phenomenon on Earth is, can be described really uh, as, um, uh, the dynamics between opposing forces. And this is Zhuangzi here. And even you can see on the picture the butterfly. There is a very famous uh, uh, poem by him that uh, appears uh, and is quoted many times in the literature that one night he was uh, dreaming about uh, a butterfly and after a while he had no idea whether he was dreaming the butterfly or the butterfly was dreaming him, or actually both of them were dreaming uh, each other. So it's, a, it's really a kind of uh, universal uh, philosophical thing. It also appears, uh, of course, in the Arabic literature. Uh, there is uh, Sheikh Akbar ibn Arabi, the great Sheikh, uh, who uh, lived at several places, including Jerusalem and Mecca, and died in Damascus. And this is, uh, he was not only a philosopher, but also a uh, Sophie uh, poet. And he puts it uh, really beautifully here that uh, I marveled at an ocean without shore and at a shore that didn't have an ocean and that a morning light without darkness, and that a night that was without daybreak. So this is precisely the same idea that you, you cannot even define the ocean without the borders. You cannot even define the light uh, without darkness. Uh, very beautiful uh, poem. And actually, being a philosopher, he traces back this idea uh, to the Koran, to the Holy Koran, the pen and the tablet. The pen is pointing upwards and the tablet is down there. And in fact, uh, the whole uh, scripture is somehow, uh, uh, these, these laws are sort of uh, the, uh, the synthesis of, of, uh, of these two. Now, it's not only philosophers, of course, who were uh, concerned with these ideas. But there were scientists too. And uh, one fa famous scientist who died tragically early, maybe I will tell you later how, was Paul Kammerer, a biologist, uh, who took very detailed diary uh, in which he wrote down those uh, irregular events uh, that uh, he noticed in his everyday life. And in 1910, uh, 
November 4, he put in his diary that uh, his brother-in-law brother went to a concert in Vienna, and at this concert, uh, he was sitting at, he got uh, seat number nine, and he also got the cloakroom ticket number nine. It's really a coincidence. He thought that, uh, and then uh, one day later, uh, both of them attended another concert uh, in Vienna, and the same guy got the seat number 21, and again the, the cloakroom ticket uh, number 21. And he has a lot of uh, such coincidences. He not noticed a lot of uh, coincidences like that. And uh, uh, based on his empirical data, he try to come up with a theory that can these coincidences be explained by simple probabilities or, or uh, are they really curious coincidences? Of course, it's not so easy uh, to quantify these things, that how likely or unlikely these events are, because in particular, we don't know how many seats there were. So imagine if it is a small concert room in which there are uh, like uh, 50 seats, then of course it's not so unlikely that you get uh, uh, that, that this coincidence. But if you have like hundreds of seats, then perhaps it is more unlikely. So this, uh, uh, returning to this Paul Kammerer, I said that he died uh, tragically. In fact, what happened uh, was that uh, there was a, his main discovery was uh, that uh, he managed to prove it by experiments uh, that uh, certain acquired uh, properties uh, can be inherited. And uh, there is a nice book written about here by Arthur Kessler, uh, a famous uh, uh, polymath writer, uh, philosopher who uh, uh, happened to be born in Hungary, my country. Uh, and the book he wrote about Kammerer was the case of the mid midwife toad. So this was uh, the, the experiments were made on salamanders and on midwife toads. I don't know much about uh, these animals. Uh, but shortly after these experiments came out and he published his results and on the base of that he was appointed professor in Vienna uh, there was a devastating article in the Nature magazine that appeared uh, in which uh, the author claimed uh, that the results of the experiment uh, were falsified. And most likely, it wasn't Kammerer who falsified the uh, results. Uh, they were forged by uh, his assistant, but uh, really we never know. And shortly after that, uh, Kammerer committed suicide. But he wrote a, a nice book, uh, Das Gesetz der Series, uh, The Law of Seriality, in which he writes about these coincidences. And uh, his uh, main idea is that, uh, that these identical events or, or similar events or data appear so often uh, in a context when you cannot... Uh, make any sort of uh, causal uh, relationship between uh, things, 
that uh, they cannot be called coincidences, really. And uh, his theory was taken seriously. Uh, Einstein, for instance, uh, said that, that uh, it's, uh, this, this theory is definitely, uh, about his book, the theory is definitely interesting and uh, by no means absurd, so it cannot be just, uh, you know, completely disregarded. But of course, you should understand that this came out at the beginning of the 20th century. And a lot of really strange uh, discoveries were made at the uh, beginning of the 20th century that looked even crazier, including Einstein's uh, relativity theory or quantum mechanics, the quantum phenomena. They looked completely absurd and still uh, today they are like uh, the basis of our accepted knowledge of, uh, of uh, physics. And another uh, famous person who uh, wrote a book about it was uh, Carl Gustav Jung, who was uh, one of the major figures of psychoanalysis. Uh, he also uh, was uh, sort of educated on classical Chinese texts, and uh, he based uh, uh, his sort of uh, theory of uh, coincidences and synchronicity, as he called it, uh, on a number of psychic paranormal phenomena that were uh, 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 discovered, telepathy and uh, things that came up uh, during all kinds of uh, um, hypnotic sessions. And uh, it's an interesting fact that one of uh, uh, Jung's patients uh, with whom he really discussed this topic a lot was Wolfgang Pauli, the Nobel Prize winner uh, physicist who discovered the neutrino. And uh, he uh, also believed uh, in uh, synchronicity. Now, okay, so it seems that uh, this, about this, after this cultural kind of introduction, it is really unavoidable uh, to go a little bit into the nature of randomness. If you wish a little bit into mathematics, but, but I try to avoid uh, using this uh, M word. Now, uh, there was, again, by accident, a uh, uh, Hungarian high, high school teacher who uh, came up with a wonderful test uh, which uh, says something very important about uh, the nature of randomness. And if you ever teach uh, in, a, in a high school or you want to impress uh, your children or your parents, then I think that this is a very interesting uh, uh, sort of trick and magic that, uh, that uh, you can do. So what is the Varga test? So the test is the following. Pick a coin and flip it a large number of times, 100 times, 200 times, and write down the sequence of heads and tails. So if it comes up head, then you write a letter H. If it comes up tail, you write a letter, letter T. So H, T, H, T, T, you get something completely random. You write it down. And then Varga said that, okay, he said to his pupils that, uh, to his pupils that, that now uh, write 
kind of a random sequence uh, uh, the way you wish. You just take a piece of paper and write down a sequence. And uh, one of these two pieces of papers was handed to him. He looked at it for about one minute, and after one minute, uh, with very large probability, he was able to tell whether he was given the really random sequence or the one that was cooked up uh, by the students. And uh, so what is the solution? Shortly after that, uh, this uh, experiment was uh, sort of publicized in Hungarian high schools. Uh, actually, two Hungarian mathematicians, uh, Erdős and Davis, wrote a, a, a paper about it. And in this paper, they calculated exactly uh, the sort of uh, what, what the trick behind this was. So the trick was the following, that what Varga did was just looked at the sequence and checked if the sequence contained six consecutive hats, letter ages, or six consecutive uh, tails, TTT, right after each other. If in the sequence there was no such thing, then it was almost certainly cooked up by the students. Because the students are afraid of writing. You know, maybe, maybe if you think about a random sequence, you write, of course, two hats after each other, three hats, sometimes four. You wouldn't write six. You would think that that's kind of over the limit. It never happens that it, it comes up, because otherwise I would go to the casino and I would win a lot. Same with the, uh, the tales. And actually, it turns out that, that the probability that, uh, that uh, you get in a random sequence, uh, six uh, heads or six tails right after each other, is close to 90%. So, so in a really random sequence, you almost certainly can find such a thing. That was, uh, that was the trick. Now, uh, let me just show you this one mathematical figure because it's interesting to think about it. If you, so if you, if you never studied mathematics or, or there's no intention of you to, to ever study that. You can just uh, not listen to what I'm saying. But actually, what's happening here, look at the sequence, uh, head pair sequence, the, the one that we created above. And we can think about it in the following way, that uh, here you know, on this axis, you put the integers. 0, plus 1, plus 2, plus 3, also the negative integers. And whenever you have a head, then you move up one. When you have a tail, you move down one. So then, if this is, you know, the number of coin flips, then what you get is up, down, 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 up. You get such a curve. And this curve really corresponds to that sequence, right? It describes that sequence. So this is uh, usually this graph. This is uh, uh, studied by uh, mathematicians. And, uh, and uh, in fact, it wasn't the mathematicians who started thinking about it. It was more, you know, those French noblemen uh, in the uh, 16th, 17th century uh, who had enough money, didn't have to worry about uh, uh, work. And uh, there was a French Enlightenment. Uh, they played a lot of games of chances. And they wanted to figure out uh, their chances of winning 
in some game, losing in some game. So in particular, this is the simplest game. Of course, they were uh, more interested in playing dice, but, but this, this was also a simple game, the, the coin flipping game. And there was a uh, famous uh, correspondence uh, uh, between uh, Fermat and Pascal, which has eventually led to the uh, discovery of uh, what we consider today as the basics of, of probability theory, which was essentially done uh, by the middle of the 19th century. So there were basically two things that they discovered. The first thing is, which looks very logical, but it had to be put in the right framework, is that, you know, if you do this, uh, this uh, coin uh, flipping, say, a hundred times, then you would expect that roughly 50 times it will come up head, and roughly 50 times it will come up, uh, come up tail. So if it is exactly 50 times, then of course you go up 50 times, you go down 50 times, and eventually you will end up exactly on this, uh, uh, on this horizontal axis. But in most cases, you won't be far from that. And that was the second kind of discovery that they made, which is usually referred to uh, today as the law of large numbers. That it means that if uh, you flip the coin n times, now n can be any number, then roughly well, you won't, uh, won't have precisely the same uh, number of heads and tails, but in most cases, uh, the difference between these two numbers will be of the order of magnitude of square root of n. Now it's, important to know only that square root, of, of, square root of n is much smaller than n. So the, 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 the discrepancy between the number of, of, of heads and tails will be, will be small. So this, is, this was what probability theory said. Now, um, there is another kind of phenomenon that uh, uh, I'd like to tell you, uh, which was again, not discovered originally by mathematicians, or I will tell you uh, the details of the story in a second, uh, but uh, it was discovered by psychologists, psychologists and sociologists. Somehow in the 1950s, in the uh, sort of anti-communist, anti-Marxist atmosphere, uh, sociologists moved away from the... Uh, study of large groups, classes of people, and they concentrated, so it was more safe to concentrate on the, uh, on the dynamics of, of, of small, uh, small groups of people, and there were many interesting experiments uh, done in schools. So one interesting observation uh, sociologists made was the following, that uh, if you go to a school, and with a, with a sufficiently large number of students, then uh, in most cases you will find a large number of groups of, of school children who mutually like each other. They called it a clique. Or a large group of people who mutually disliked each other. They called it like an anti-clique. You can... I don't know how, how well you can see the colors. Mathematicians like to talk about uh, graphs. So, so here you can see uh, 
uh, a diagram that you can make, a graph that you can uh, make. Uh, these, these six numbers represent six people, and uh, if two uh, people like each other, then you connect them by a red segment. If they dislike each other, then uh, you connect them by a blue segment. So you get what we call a complete graph uh, whose edges are colored uh, with red and blue. Now there is a, a very interesting uh, high school sort of uh, uh, problem that don't think about uh, it now, but uh, if you like puzzles, then uh, this is a nice puzzle that uh, you almost certainly, after some thinking, you can solve. That uh, if you, in, in this particular situation, if you have six students, then among six students, you always find three who mutually like each other, which corresponds here a red triangle or three people who mutually dislike each other. Of course, you don't know which of these two possibilities will occur. Maybe both of them will occur. But at least one of these possibilities will occur. So uh, you don't know that which one, because it, it is possible that you know these six people all hate each other. And then, of course, you, you will never find three of them who like each other. But in that case, you can find three of them who dislike each other. Now, uh, these sociologists kind of believe that this is, uh, this is uh, some uh, law of uh, human nature, that we like to form cliques or anti-cliques. And it sounds kind of logical. Sounds kind of logical. However, uh, this Frank Ramsey, a uh, 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 famous uh, British mathematician, uh, proved that it, this has nothing to do with sociology. In this particular form, quantitative form, the theorem uh, was proved by uh, Erdős and Szekeres. Uh, so the statement is uh, that uh, what we saw in the previous puzzle, that you can find three people who mutually like or mutually dislike each other, you can, you can see it for any kind of number k. You take 100 people. The only thing is that in order to find 100 people who mutually like or dislike each other, you have to take a much bigger school. How big of a school? Well, unfortunately, the school has to be big. Really, the number of students should be 4 to the 100, which is probably bigger than the number of, of uh, uh, atoms in the universe. But never mind, uh, this is... Uh, kind of a philosophical fact, if you wish. This philosophical fact somehow says that um, there is no total chaos, right? So no matter how you uh, define the relationships between, uh, between a large number of people, you can always find uh, large, but of course much smaller groups of people uh, who who all like each other or dislike each other, which is a very regular behavior. So you start with a totally chaotic system of uh, relationship, and, and then, no matter how you define that, you find many people who are completely, who, who all like each other or dislike each other. So in the total chaos, you find this kind of regularity on a smaller, uh, smaller scale, scale. Now... Uh, 
So let's let's uh, uh, see whether uh, uh, that what we can say about uh, about natural laws, whether in nature uh, this regular behavior occurs or doesn't occur. Well, this is a very difficult question because usually what happens is that you only see one part of the truth. For instance, if you think about it like uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, most people saw, looked around and they, they saw that the, the, the world was flat. And in fact, uh, based on this assumption, they discovered all kinds of interesting uh, uh, things like planar geometry, Euclidean geometry, uh, as you learned in school. But the truth is, that they only, they only had a small window. Of course, that window grew over the time, and then uh, we discovered all, all uh, kinds of things. But even today, if you think about it, we have information only uh, about one limited part of the universe. And based on that, we try to make guesses, we try to, uh, to, we we try to find regularities, natural laws, but we have to understand that, that uh, these, these, uh, these laws uh, actually uh, may be, may be uh, kind of uh, completely, uh, completely false. So based on that, so if you look at this picture, uh, actually what you would think, oops, no, this is, uh, I gave away, why is it so slow? So this is what you would think, that, uh, the word is like a lattice, a grid, huh? natural, natural grid. Of course, the grid is a very interesting, uh, very interesting uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, construction, and uh, there were interesting, interesting discoveries, mathematical discoveries made about that. So let me tell you uh, just one because it comes with a funny story. Uh, there was a famous mathematician and educator, uh, George Poya, who uh, worked for many years at Zurich University. And uh, he was kind of strolling, once he was strolling around uh, in the park of, uh, of Zurich University, and the park had some kind of this, this grid-like structure. And after five minutes of walking, he bumped into a colleague of his uh, who was uh, uh, walking around in the park uh, in the evening with his girlfriend. So he continued walking. They greeted each other. He continued walking. And after three more minutes, he again bumped into them. And then this was repeated a certain uh, number of times, and, 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 and then he felt kind of embarrassed because he thought that this colleague certainly, they, they probably think that, that uh, he's spying after them or, or, or something like that. Uh, so being a mathematician, he went home, and uh, he started calculating the probability that such a thing will occur. And it turns out that, yes, it, it, it does occur. So if there are with the... So you have to make, of course, some kind of a model. This is what you do. And the model was that, that when you are at a point in this grid, then you just randomly walk around, you randomly uh, go from each point with probability one quarter in one of the four possible directions. And this is at, at every second, uh, 
uh, you move not like previously one position up, one position down, but you can also move to the right or move to the left. And then it turned out that if you have two random walks on the same grid, then with probability, almost surely, uh, they have to meet. In, in fact, almost surely, they have to meet a large number of times. Uh, well, it's not clear whether his colleague knew, his colleague knew that, or, or uh, uh, but, but he, he definitely figured out this fact. But the truth usually is much more complicated. In fact, the, the part of the picture that I showed was uh, uh, New York, Manhattan. Uh, here you can see in Greenwich Village, actually, the Washington Square Park, the main campus of NYU. So it, it has some parts where there is a grid structure. There are some parts where the grid structure is broken. So the truth, the inconvenient truth is that uh, uh, kind of uh, life is more complicated and, and, and uh, we don't uh, really, we don't really uh, know in many cases whether those rules apply or don't apply. Now, these grids and lattice arrangements, as mathematicians like to call them, these very regular arrangements, they appear actually naturally in, in uh, uh, many contexts. They appear in biology, they appear in physics, in crystallography. Uh, and, uh, and also, it was an interesting discovery at the end of the 19th century that uh, it's not just an accident. In some sense, these regular structures are best possible. So what is the, again, here is a theorem. You, you don't read uh, the theorem. I, I will uh, tell you what it means. Uh, you imagine that you have a big table, and you have to put uh, equal, equal coins, uh, like, uh, I don't know, quarters uh, on that uh, big table so that they don't overlap, they may touch each other, and you want to put as many coins as possible on the table. It turns out that the best way of arranging them is, uh, is uh, this kind of what I call hexagonal arrangement. So it's not clear, you know, at first, because you would think that perhaps uh, if you put them regularly like this in a square grid manner, perhaps it is better. But no, this is, this is uh, the hexagonal arrangement is, is much better. With the hexagonal arrangement, you can, you can fill roughly 90% of the uh, area of the table by coins, uh, which is much better than uh, you can do here. So actually, this, this, this uh, 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 grids, these lattice arrangements, they, they come up uh, in a very natural uh, fashion. And uh, also, there is an interesting paper about it that in some sense, uh, you know, bees also optimize, and, and there is a reason why the honeycomb uh, is hexagonal. If you look at the same problem uh, in three dimensions, this was already asked by Kepler uh, at the beginning of the 17th century. Uh, this, uh, he uh, wrote a very nice uh, pamphlet about this problem. Uh, that what happens, same problem, you have a big box and you want to pack as many cannonballs 
into this huge box as many you can. How do you have to arrange them? Now, Kepler conjectured that uh, this is the way how to arrange them. Now, uh, I will also call it like hexagonal arrangement because what happens is that if you think about it, that this arrangement consists of layers, and each of those layers uh, is like a hexagonal uh, uh, packing, like the one that I, I showed in the play. Now, this, that this is an economical sort of arrangement. You, you can put a lot of balls uh, in a small uh, uh, sort of uh, region in this way. This was, of course, discovered by uh, many people because... Uh, if you go to the market, then on the market you can see that oranges and apples and whatever, they are always arranged in, uh, in this fashion. But this may have, you know, a different reason. Maybe it is more uh, stable, who knows. But actually, uh, it turns out it is a theorem, and after uh, almost 400 years, uh, uh, he has uh, uh, proved that, that this is really the densest packing of of uh, cannonballs. I put a little question mark there because it's an interesting fact that, that uh, this theorem was, uh, had a computer-aided proof. And in fact, not only that the proof was computer-aided, but to check the correctness of the proof, you also need a computer. So there are some people who have doubts whether that, that uh, proof, is, uh, uh, proof is correct. So let me show one last mathematical example, but, but here uh, really uh, don't look at those uh, uh, first four nights. It's, it's, it's really a very simple question, only if you are uh, a mathematician. So uh, the question that we would like to address here is that, okay, these lattices, these grids, they really look perfect. And... Uh, they, they appear in nature uh, because nature maybe tries to optimize certain things. But is it always possible uh, to sort of create perfect order? And one nice uh, sample problem is the following. That uh, imagine that uh, you kind of try to distribute uh, points as uniformly as possible, whatever it means, uh, in a unit square, in a square of side length one. So what does it mean that you want to have this uh, as uniform as possible? Well, uh, so if you have this square, if in the total, in, if, if in this square you have altogether n points, then you would expect that if I cut this square into four smaller squares, then in each of those four uh, smaller uh, uh, squares, I would have roughly one quarter of the points. In fact, if it is really uniform, you would expect that if you take any subsquare uh, whose uh, uh, size is one half by one half, uh, then it will contain roughly one quarter of the points. And, but the question is that, can you achieve that? Can you really come up with an arrangement uh, of n points, uniform arrangement, so that no matter how you put not only a square, but, but uh, a rectangle, even a rectangle of area A, then 
roughly uh, you will, this, this, this rectangle would contain the whatever you expect, the expected number of points. Actually, if the area of the rectangle is, uh, is uh, C, then you would expect that the number of points in that rectangle would be roughly C times N. But this is not important. So your first guess would be, guess would be that just like before, the grid is pretty good. Because if you take a rectangle, uh, then it will cover uh, so roughly as many, as many uh, grid points uh, as many it should. But then, it, like here I have 400 points uh, and uh, I take a rectangle with, I mean a, a square whose uh, side length is roughly one half. But then I have a little bit of, after a little bit of thinking, you convince yourself that this is not quite the case. Because if you take this rectangle, this, this square, and you move it a little bit, then suddenly uh, it will contain fewer points, right? So let's go back. So previously, this square contained uh, uh, all of those points on the upper contour and on the left side. And when I moved a little bit, I lost those points. And the size of the square is precisely the same. So one of these two squares, at least, must contain uh, not precisely the same number of points that it should. It should contain. In fact, it turns out uh, that uh, uh, the difference between the actual number of points and what you expect to be uh, in such a rectangle uh, is, uh, in this case, uh, square root of n. So... It's, uh, it, it is actually a consequence of the, it's the same square root of n in some sense as what appeared in the law of large numbers. So can we do better? It turns out, and this is, this is a, a really a serious mathematical uh, achievement, uh, you again don't have to uh, read this, uh, this uh, statement, that yes, there are better arrangements than the square grid. In fact, uh, there is an arrangement of n points in the unit square uh, so that no matter what rectangle you consider in it, the number of actual number of points in it and the number of points uh, that should be in it, that what you would expect uh, uh, differs for every, over all rectangles, it differs only by log n, the logarithm of n. It doesn't matter what it is. The important thing is that this logarithm of n is much, much smaller than n. So actually, there are much better point sets. Uh, this, uh, this is a very nice uh, construction. But what is even more important uh, for our uh, purposes is that, uh, that uh, in fact, this, this error is unavoidable. There is nothing better. So this means that no matter how uh, you try to make a, the most uniform, the most orderly arrangement of endpoints in the plane, even in that you find some irregularity. You always find a rectangle in which the difference between what is expected and the actual number of points is large. Large is the logarithm of n. Well, it is large in the sense that, you know, if n is large, then this logarithm of n is also large. If n but mathematicians say it tends to infinity, 
then the logarithm of n is also tends to infinity. So this, again, uh, it kind of shows that, that perfect regularity in this model is impossible. It's, it's, it's impossible to achieve this. Now, let's go back to uh, this uh, magic, uh, this uh, Varga magic, because uh, this leads us to an, to an important problem in, uh, in computer science, in mathematical logic. So, so if you have a happier sequence, then... So what do we expect from an average kind of happier sequence? So obviously, if you look at the, the uh, first one, hat, 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 this is not an average, because this contradicts the first law that was discovered by the uh, French philosophers, right? That the number of hats is much bigger than the number of tails, although they should be roughly the same. Uh, in fact, all of them are hats. That this is not a problem for the second sequence, hat, tail, hat, tail, hat, tail, same number of hats as number of, uh, of uh, uh, tails, but that is also not an average kind of sequence because, because it is too regular, right? It contradicts the second law. It is not true that, that uh, what you, for, for instance, you cannot find uh, six consecutive hats and six consecutive, consecutive tails. But look at the third sequence. The third sequence is uh, kind of, it looks uh, pretty random, right? This hat, tail, hat, 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 tail. Well, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, not easy to, uh, to tell, but the truth is that this is also a simple sequence in the sense that if you consider one to be a prime number, actually in this sequence, uh, at each place, if it is a prime number that you have a head, and if it is not a prime number, you have a tail. So one is a prime number, say, Two is a prime number, so you have another hat. Three is a prime number. Four is not a prime number, so you have a tail at the fourth position. Then five is a prime number, a hat. Six is again two times three, not a prime number. So this looks like a complicated sequence, but it's very easy to define it. It's very easy. To, you can give a short description how you, can, uh, how you can define this sequence, how you can construct this sequence. And uh, in fact, this is a very important notion in uh, computer science and, and uh, probability. This is called the Kolmogorov complexity uh, of the sequence and how short of a description uh, of the sequence uh, you can give. Now, but here we face a very important and interesting problem, the language. So... Maybe that's all what causes all this trouble, you know, that, that we have this, 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 this language. And maybe there is some problem with the language. But it turns out that no. Actually, that definition doesn't strongly depend on the language. And uh, here we come to the crisis of what was called the crisis of foundations at the beginning of the 20th century, which really shook mathematics and... and uh, for many years, it wasn't clear if it was the end of mathematics or not. And eventually, uh, this led to the, uh, the uh, sort of building uh, modern computers. So that was what we call Russell's paradox. So there was this uh, mathematician and philosopher, Gottlob Frege, 
who wrote a very important book uh, in 1983, uh, and he prepared the second edition of it in 1903, uh, in which um, he uh, thought that uh, he gave a perfect description of the foundations of mathematics, a system of axioms, a system of logical rules, and uh, based on those axioms, every statement which is true, uh, you can prove. And, uh, and he built uh, two volumes about it, uh, how, to, uh, how to prove mathematical statements about the theory of, of uh, the basics of mathematics. And then in the second edition, in the introduction he wrote, that there is no bigger tragedy for an intellectual than uh, at the, when he has to write uh, a couple of days before the publication of the second edition of his book, uh, he discovers that the basics of what he wanted to, what he wrote about, was completely false, completely wrong. And this was actually the result of what we call Russell's paradox. And I can tell you Russell's paradox, and then I will, uh, I will finish. So for those who don't know, this is really a remarkable thing. Uh, you can describe it in one sentence. So Russell uh, came up with this one sentence that uh, consider, he said, the smallest integer, the smallest number that can be defined, uh, but that cannot be defined uh, by an English sentence uh, using at most 20 words. So the smallest number that cannot be defined in 20 words. So this is clearly a number that cannot be defined in 20 words. Yet, if you count the number of words in this definition, it is 17. So this number can be defined in 17 words, which is less than 20. So what's the problem? You think that, that maybe this is just the English language, but it turned out no. That would, that's a basic, this is a serious problem with, with, with mathematics. So there are some definitions that uh, simply, although they look uh, very precise, but they have to be avoided somehow because there is a problem with that. And mathematics and computer science still struggles with Russell's paradox. By the way, Russell was a uh, very uh, kind of colorful figure, a heavy smoker, as you can see. And uh, he also had the, had the saying that was repeated many times that, if I don't smoke, I shall die. And uh, if you think about it, what does it mean? Well, actually, what uh, he referred to, but <laughs> most people, of course, didn't know about uh, in this fact, that uh, he survived uh, two air crashes. And in one of the crashes, everybody died, except a couple of people who were sitting in the smoking section of the plane. You know, you can hardly imagine that because for many years, uh, no plane you can smoke, but, but, but actually, uh, in most of the 20th century, it was possible. So, okay, so, but, uh, but uh, I, I, I wanted to uh, finish, you know, at a, my time is up, is at a point which is kind of uh, surprising. Uh, with a paradox, other paradox, or at least at the moment, which is surprising. So clearly I cannot uh, finish it now, 
because since I told you that I wanted to finish it at the moment, which is surprising, you wouldn't be surprised at all. So maybe I will finish it, you know, one moment from now. But that wouldn't be good either, right? Because you know that I want to, want to, want to finish it uh, uh, at a surprising moment. I cannot finish it now. So the first possibility would be one moment from now. It wouldn't be surprising at all. So you at least have to wait two moments, right? But, but given that I cannot finish it uh, now, I cannot finish it in one moment, you wouldn't be surprised if I finish it in two moments. Uh, and so on. So if I look around, I, 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 I feel that I have actually finished. Thank you very much for the attention. Well, we have uh, plenty of time for questions, and uh, there are two people walking around with microphones. And here is one, too, for you. Yes. Uh, I think everybody can hear me. So uh, if you have a question, just raise your hand, and the person with a microphone will take the microphone to you. And uh, wait until you have the microphone to ask the question so that everybody can hear it. Thank you. Uh, for the rectangle discrepancy problem, log n is the lower bound. What is the current upper bound? Log n is the lower, log n is actually correct. Ah, okay. I, I used to think it's log n to the some 2.5. That was no, no, no. Log n for for this x is parallel rectangles. This is really log n. Which ah, okay. Thanks. Yeah. Hello. Um, Hello. What do you think of the idea that um, rolling a die or uh, tossing a coin isn't inherently random? Because to some extent, if we can uh, know about the initial condition before we perform the, the random uh, event, we, if we know all about the initial condition, we can theoretically uh, predict the result. And actually, uh, I've seen on the internet uh, an, a couple of robots that can um, control those initial conditions and uh, always come out with the same result, head or tail? So this is a very interesting question. So it can be answered or, uh, on a philosophical level and also on a practical level. So uh, on a philosophical level, uh, this idea uh, uh, came up uh, at the time uh, of the Enlightenment uh, by uh, French philosophers, and in fact, uh, it was uh, Descartes uh, who introduced the, the system of coordinates and this whole method how a physical process can be described uh, using what today we call calculus uh, and these coordinates. And uh, in this Cartesian uh, sort of uh, mathematics, it looked plausible that if we know more and more about uh, 
the position of those, uh, you know, atoms and molecules, if we knew today for each atom in the universe that, that where it is exactly with, uh, with uh, what uh, uh, velocity it moves, then uh, maybe we could tell the whole future of the universe. Now, this looked very possible. Uh, it is possible, actually, that this thing is valid for, uh, uh, for, for many physical phenomena. But basically, uh, what quantum mechanics uh, showed that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, this is impossible. So there is uh, uh, this famous uh, uncertainty relation uh, uh, of Heisenberg, who was one of the founders of, uh, of um, uh, quantum physics, uh, which actually says that if you want to determine the position of an atom and its velocity, then uh, you are bound to make a mistake. The product of the two mistakes uh, sort of is bigger than an absolute constant. So if you want to determine the position uh, with, with uh, great precision, then you will have less information about the velocity and vice versa. So uh, as we understand quantum physics today, uh, the, somehow the, the, the future is not determined. Now as for the second aspect of your question about the, the coin flipping, Coins are, of course, huge. They are not like atoms. So these quantum phenomena uh, most likely don't really apply in that context. And uh, in fact, you don't have to produce a robot. Uh, you can be a you know, talented con man and, uh, and uh, learn it how to flip a coin in such a way that you can actually influence uh, the outcome of the experiment. Maybe not perfectly, but so that uh, the, the number of heads, for instance, would be significantly, uh, uh, the probability that it comes up head will be significantly larger than one half. And no coin is perfect. The weight distribution is not perfect. It has some, some kind of global physical parameters uh, in which they are not perfect. And indeed, you can explore them to cheat to cheat randomness. So you can build a business on that, you know, in, <laughs> in a casino. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that actually the U.S. nickel has a, a one in 6,000 chance uh, uh, of landing not on its head or tail, actually, on its side. <laughs> so that's interesting. Yes, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning uh, Hegel uh, philosophy, and at the end, Russell's paradox. Uh, do you see any connection? Do I see any connection? Well, I mean, uh, as, a, as a mathematician, I see a connection, but maybe the connection is uh, uh, sort of too much roundabout. Because uh, 
uh, Russell's paradox really opened this, um, uh, you know, uh, battle uh, and let the uh, genie out. And after that, uh, uh, all kinds of deep problems uh, occurred uh, uh, in, in mathematical logics, but which partly were clarified uh, by Goethe's theorems. So, roughly speaking, uh, one of Goethe's theorems says that um, uh, it's not uh, that we have a problem with the axioms of mathematics. Because you would think that, okay, so if you have a problem with the axioms, we add another axiom and then everything will be perfect. We can build uh, logically uh, the building of mathematics based on that. But what Gödel proved was that uh, that no matter what system of axiom uh, you come up with, necessarily there will be a statement which you can neither prove or, or disprove uh, in, that, uh, in that system of axioms. So somehow, you know, there is no perfection there. In every perfect quote-unquote system of axioms, uh, there are black holes where you cannot make a statement. And in some sense, in my mind, Russell's paradox uh, is, you know, uh, such a hole. And uh, my understanding of mathematics is, you know, just that, that it is like uh, uh, a body of statements that we can prove, uh, 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 prove using, uh, using those axioms. And then, you know, there, there are the complementary uh, statements that, that are impossible to prove. And somehow, the synthesis of these two is what I consider mathematics. But I think that this is a, this is a very serious question. And, and uh, I, I, I cannot give a definitive answer to that. Yeah. Hi, good evening. Yeah, thank you for your presentation, which adds some complexity for our life tonight. <laughs> uh, basically, to go back to the Farga test. To? Uh, Farga test. Fa yes. Farga test or Farga test. Yes. Which says that there is 80% that uh, yes. flipping the coin, the head will be six. This is what I remember from the slide. Yes, you have six hats and uh, the, yeah. or six tails with probability, yeah. Uh, yeah, more than 80%. Yeah, basically, uh, this is my understanding. Every time you flip the coin, there's no correlation between yeah. the previous one and the second one. Yeah. Because every time you have 50, exactly. 50 chance. Yes. So based on what they come up with the 80% that the head will be in six. So... You know, the, this is a very good question. So what happens is the following, that, that, uh, that uh, so just uh, don't think about six consecutive uh, digits, just look at uh, two consecutive digits, right? So, so if you look at two consecutive positions, there are four possibilities. Head, 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 tail, tail, head, and tail, tail. And in fact, each of these possibilities uh, is uh, equally likely. So, uh, but I, and I have made a large number of coin flips. 
So if it, there is a large number of coin flips and I divide those into pairs, you know, then this means that there is a large number of pairs of experiments. And roughly in one quarter of the cases, uh, I will have that a pair will be head-head, a pair will be head-tail, a pair will be... It will be 25%, 25%, 25%. And it is the same thing if you have six consecutive positions. Then actually, if you have hat, 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 six times, the probability of that is very small. One divided by two to the six. One half times one half times one half times one half, you, you do it six times. It's very, very small. But since you repeat this experiment many times, Nevertheless, in one of out of, the, out of those times, uh, you will have uh, this, this will occur. The only question is that how many times I have to, have to repeat this, uh, this experiment in order to get that. So, yeah, if it is 200 times, it was 80, like 85%. If I, if I uh, repeat uh, the coin flipping 400 times, then it is 99% that it will occur. Moreover, with large probability, you will also have seven uh, you know, heads next to each other or seven tails next to each other. So as you increase that number, also this kind of uh, regular subsequence, the length of that will increase. Yes. Um, uh, human beings like to order things by, and for example, they do models to do that. And they model history and they explain history by forces, fundamental forces, and when they want to be sophisticated, they increase the number of factors. And they do the same thing about the future. But once in a while, there are some people that come up with a small factor, an irrelevant factor, that may have, and we never know, changed the course of history. You know, a, a, yeah. a horseshoe that fell or something like this. What yeah. can mathematics tell us about this? So uh, uh, there are uh, uh, parts of uh, mathematics in uh, chaos theory, for instance, where, where, uh, which, which is... Um, um, concerned with uh, uh, these phenomena, and there are several such phenomena. So, so those uh, uh, examples that are showed uh, were basically taken from what is called discrete mathematics. Discrete, uh, in this sense, means finite mathematics. So there were finite, we, 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 we flip the coin finitely many times uh, in that uh, group of school children. There were finitely many school children, and so on. But what you learn in school mostly uh, is non-finite mathematics, it's calculus. Calculus and, and also what you need uh, very often for uh, designing airplanes and whatever is uh, differential geometry, differential equations, uh, sort of uh, a theory of continuous functions. It's not just like those functions I showed that they go up or down or up or down. These are finite functions, but, but, but really com complicated continuous functions. And sometimes, you know, uh, when you change such a function uh, uh, a little bit, then, then uh, uh, all kinds of proper properties drastically change. So, uh, you know, this phenomenon that uh, uh, in, in differential uh, equations, this is a well-known phenomenon which, which many people describe that... Uh, if, uh, you know, a butterfly uh, moves its uh, wings in, in Mexico, then 
uh, actually it may eventually cause an earthquake, an earthquake in Paraguay or whatever. Uh, this uh, uh, is uh, in large parts of mathematics and physics, uh, it is uh, really the case. And as you said, uh, the laws of uh, history are even more complicated and it is even more difficult to pinpoint that what is that little thing, you know, that, that causes a huge revolution uh, and um, sort of a, a big change in the history of mankind. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. Uh, thank you, Sir Janos, for this interesting presentation. To thank be you honest, for listening. Thank you. Uh, to be honest, I hated the mathematics all my life, but I can see now how beautiful the mathematics is implementing <laughs> in our life. So back to the topic, uh, order and disorder. So in order for us to accept or leave the order, we have also to accept the disorder or as a conclusion. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, that, that, that was the point I wanted to make. So thank you for emphasizing. Thank it. you, sir. So, so someone over there wanted. <clears throat> yes. Uh, so kind of on that topic, uh, if there is too much chaos in the life, it's be it becomes very difficult in the human's life, in the person's life. If it is too ordered, everything <laughs> is well known. It's kind of too boring. <laughs> so as a mathematician or maybe as a just a scientist that deals with mathematics, maybe with psychology, could you, I don't know, either as a formula that could advise a right balance for the humans of enough chaos and enough order? <laughs> so I, I don't think that I am old enough to answer this question, although I am pretty old. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that uh, uh, there is a formula, but uh, what this, uh, you know, I think that mathematics is, 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 is a very simple kind of model compared to uh, real life. And you see that in mathematics uh, uh, already this uh, uh, both chaos and regularity. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, both are, it seems that both of these things are uh, unavoidable and, uh, 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 you know, the, the balance depends on the particular model, at least in mathematics, but I guess it is also true for, for our own life, you know, that if you have a particular model, you have some uh, particular expectations, then in that framework, you can define that what is chaotic and, and uh, uh, what is regular, and it really depends on you. So even in mathematics, it's complicated, you see, because, because when you look at those head-tail sequences, then we were surprised that uh, you could have subsequences uh, of, of length six, hat, 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 right? So the funny thing was that that was the irregularity the surprising thing, that there was a subsequence which was very regular. So is it irregular, regular, both? So um, I have a question about 
a relationship between two things that you talked about. Um, the law of large numbers. Yes. And I would like to know what you think of how that relates to the possibility of repeating an event. So if you had a coin, for example, that you knew you could only flip 10 times, then that coin would disappear forever. Would that affect, do you think that there's a relationship there that affects the probability that that coin flip series would adhere to that ratio? I, I, I don't understand your model. So you have uh, uh, many so, coins. So say you, have, say you have one coin to start with, one yes. coin, and that at the end of that, Yes. Coin flipping. You can, you can flip it 10 times. After you flip it 10 times, the coin is used up and it, it evaporates. You cannot use it any longer. Yes. You can never repeat the trial. Yes. Because the conditions can never be replicated. Yes. Do you think that that would affect the outcome of what you would receive from that trial, those 10 flips? Would that adhere to that ratio if it could never be performed in the future? And so, uh, well, you know, uh, if, if, uh, we use this model, if I understand well, then uh, you look only, not at uh, sequences of coin flips of length n, large number, only sequences of coin flips of, of uh, length 10. And then uh, it is, uh, uh, from the point of view of probability theory, this is a very simple uh, case, because if you repeat the experiment only 10 times, then the probability that first time it will be had, it is one half. Uh, first time it will be there, it will be one half. Second time it is exactly the same. So just like I said before, you can specify any head, tail, head, head, tail sequence of length 10. The probability that that will be your particular, uh, the outcome of those 10 uh, coin flips will be exactly one divided by two to the 10. Do you think, though, that there is a difference if that series of events, for example, I mean, we're talking about a class of events like coin flips, but if this is something that's a supposedly random system and they can never be replicated, so it's, in essence, if you had coins, then you I mean, never coins in, again. I in, mean, in, in the model that probability theory uses, there is no difference. Okay. Uh, but, you know, if in physics... Uh, uh, there is uh, any difference, uh, that's, that's a good question, we really don't know, because uh, strangely enough, some of those ideas I mentioned from the beginning of the 20th century, this telepathy or whatever, things like that happen in physics. So it can happen actually that, you know, uh, when you uh, look at uh, two particles that originate from the, from the same one, uh, and you evaluate that the, the uh, spin of one of the particles is plus, then it turns out that far away, at the same time, the spin of the other particle is also evaluated, and this will be minus. And uh, this somehow, in many ways, contradicts uh, of our understanding of physics, but this is a possibility that that uh, sort of uh, uh, strange... Uh, uh, Synchronicity really happens in physics. That's 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 a very good question. So there, I think that there was a question over there. Uh, <clears throat> uh, thank you again. Uh, I would like to question. I don't know if this is the proper question. Can mathematician or order and disorder explain Trump situation? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> that, you know, that was, I think that I showed that um, uh, slide at the beginning uh, exactly. from CNN, today's CNN, right? Uh, that uh, there is uh, complete chaos after uh, this, uh, these uh, decisions, whether it will continue completely chaotic <laughs> or, uh, you know, after a certain number of days you notice some kind of irregularity, this is yet to be seen. Uh, uh, what all of us can do is <laughs> just to pray. <laughs> One this, last oh. question. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for this presentation. I may just add a remark to uh, what the gentleman here said. <laughs> you think there could be a connection then between mathematicians and astrologists? That, I, I, I don't mean, Trump know. happens to be a Gemini, and <laughs> you know, from an astrologist's point of view, that, I, 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 I do. don't know. You know the. the uh, <laughs> Most of those mathematicians I know don't believe in astrology, so uh, 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 I am not the right person to ask because I am prejudiced at that. <laughs> but I guess that all of us are to some extent. So thank you very much, really, for all of your questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.